Welcome to Translation Confidential. This is our Year in Review podcast. This will be our last uh, episode for the year, and we thought we would go through and look at some of the highlights of the different shows that we covered this year. I think we covered a really uh, great set of topics, and uh, definitely looking forward to 2020 as well. But why don't we start with the word of the day? I'm, of course, joined by Patrick Daly as well. Um, the word of the day is holiday. And it originates from the 1500s, and it was on Halliday, or it came from the old English Halidag as well, which is Holly Day, uh, or a consecrated day. It was a religious anniversary, uh, of course, then also from the Sabbath, so from Halig, or Holly, and uh, Day, Dag, so that's the, the root. And in the 14th century, um, is where this was used. It was mainly for a religious festival or a day of exemption. And uh, in the mid-15th century, um, it became more of an adjective, happy holidays. And uh, mid-19th century in British English as well, and was a reference to summer vacation from school. And by around the 30s in the States, it became a Christmas time greeting and also made very uh, popular in uh, camel cigarette ads, interestingly enough. Um... One other last tidbit for you. The holidays are obviously a a major source of weird world records, and one of them being the largest gathering of people wearing holiday sweaters is at 3,473, and that was recorded at the University of Kansas on December 19, 2015, um, when that many people wore ugly sweaters to a men's basketball game against Montana. Now, we we had our ugly sweater event, but we didn't have nearly that many people, Patrick. Not enough for the world record. We might uh, might be knocking on the door for most eggnog drink in one sitting, though. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, why don't we go ahead and get started? Um, we covered some really cool things this year. Um, Patrick, what, what was one of the episodes that you, uh, you really liked? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say the 25th anniversary one uh, was a pretty big deal. Um, it's always a big deal to be in business for 25 years. That's quite an accomplishment. Um, I also, we flipped the script on that one where I was kind of asking you guys the questions rather than you asking me the questions. Uh, So that was a lot of fun. Um, It was also one of our few unscripted episodes where we kind of just wing it and see how it goes. Uh, And I think it turned out really well. Yeah, I think so as well. Um, For me, one of the things that I really enjoyed about that podcast was really looking at the um, progression of technology. Uh, But overall, the technology has changed a great deal, but the formula for good translation remains the same. It's really very much a human-focused business, and uh, we certainly couldn't do um, you know, what we do and how we do it without really good people, really good translators, really good clients. Uh, it's sort of that, uh, that junction of uh, passion where people want to do good work for good clients, and I, I think that's certainly been our recipe to success. Yeah, and I think our core values contribute to that a lot, too. Like you said, a lot can change over 25 years, but having those core values, those are essentially the same throughout that whole time. Definitely. And uh, I thought as well that you know, as we were telling those stories with Jackie and going over some of those uh, crazy things that we went through, um, it really resonated that uh, being able to adapt or change is really important, as we know, you know, the companies and the crazy stories like Polaroid not wanting to change or uh, even some of the the web properties that we've seen come and go, um, you know, without having that ability to change to the needs of what customers want is um, 
really important. I think it's going to continue to be a theme in 2020 in terms of you know, where machine translation is going and where cat tools are going. I, I think that's going to continue to be right. important. Right, and that also reminds me of what we say probably four or five times an episode is that communication is key. Um, and I say this on almost every episode, too, that I'm not a mind reader, so if you can communicate your needs to us, we're going to do our best to match our level of service to that. Yep, great point, great point. Certainly uh, a recipe for success for us as well internally um, with our colleagues and coworkers and Probably great marital advice as well. <laughs> um, I think the next show for me was the mergers and acquisitions. Uh, blah, easy for me to say, mergers and acquisitions show that we did, um, episode nineteen. Um, my big takeaway there was really the due diligence. Now, and of course, I can't speak in specific terms, but Argo was looking to acquire a firm this year, and we went through a bunch of stuff. And I think it was uh, sort of cathartic to do that show. And I think. Due diligence, uh, due diligence, and then even, again, one more time, due diligence is the most important um, factor of that. Uh, do you recall any takeaways that you had from that? Yeah, I'd say um, we kind of talked, brushed up on it, uh, talking about the 25th anniversary one. It's uh, You need to make sure that there's – the culture is obviously not going to be the same at both companies, whether they're uh, being bought or buying the other company, but it needs to be pretty close, uh, and the same can go for technology one company is light years ahead in technology, it's going to be hard to either take themselves down to match the level that the other company has or for the other company to get up to speed. That's going to take a tremendous amount of time, effort, and money. Yeah, and I think um, building on that point as well, the technology and the people sort of have to be in alignment, right? That if the technology is in one place or it's um, sort of been neglected, I feel like in some respects the people may have been neglected as well, and it's not... Uh, always the best situation. So I, yeah. I, I think that was the big, uh, big take. One of the big takeaways for us in that show. And it, it's never fun to one hear that and be like, "Oh no, our technology is not really up to stuff," or to have to say that to someone back, like, "Hey, we're light years ahead of where your technology might be." Right, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just sort of the facts, mm-hmm. and, and uh, would essentially make uh, a combination of the two companies very difficult. Um, we did a lot of shows, I feel like, on how to save money on translation or essentially some things to think about where you can um, save money, save time, save rework. And I think one of the ones that we just recently did on minimum fees for episode 22 was really good. Um, what are some of the points that you recall from that one, Patrick? Mm-hmm. Um, again, we're always looking to try and save you money um, as much as we do like getting as much money as we can. We want to obviously make the experience for our customers very positive as well. Um, so one of the things you can do is batch projects. Uh, we mentioned uh, some of our clients do you know maybe small amounts of text for packaging for their products. Uh, so if you can combine all your packaging, just get us all that text. That's going to save you a lot of money. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, really, the gist of it is is you know you're absolutely right. We are a, a for profit business, so. Uh, Earning revenue is a good thing. However, uh, we do our best work when we help our clients maximize their budgets. Obviously, the, the, the more we can help them do that, the more revenue they can earn or the more connection they can create uh, internally with, with their employees. So that's really where, where you know, we come in to help. And I think taking our lead, as well as if you have a different provider, when they're giving you tips like that to batch projects or even negotiate. So you mentioned... You know, let's say you have a regular drop on a Thursday and you say, all right, every Thursday we're going to drop the content and what would that cost? So sometimes if you 
if you provide some regularity to um, the provider, they can give you some discounts or waive some fees or do mm-hmm. something. That's- yeah, to that end, I would say, too, that no two projects are the same. Uh, no two customers are the same. There's plenty of different things we can do. It's all dependent on what you have and what you need and how quickly you need it. So we have customers who do 10 languages every time they do something. So you know, we, we have a little bit more flexibility if they come with a lot of minimum projects to maybe lower our minimum charge because we're getting 10 languages worth of work. That's right. Probably the worst place you can be is if you have like one language and it's only one sentence and you only do it every once in a while, that's going to be a harder place to mm-hmm. negotiate. Yeah, because, I mean, we don't have as much flexibility. Our, our teams aren't as willing to accommodate kind of special or special requests on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is fine. It's just you have to understand you'll pay a little bit higher price. And the level of service is important as well. I think there's some flexibility that uh, you can achieve with um, doing a one linguist approach where the translator will review his or her own work. I mean, that is something that's certainly safe to do if it's a smaller uh, project and maybe one that doesn't have any regulated, it's not a regulated work for, say, mm-hmm. a medical device manufacturer or something. Or Yeah, one difficult. of my clients for sure does that. Um, they have every month they do a newsletter to all their employees. So, you know, it's not rocket surgery, as we like to say, um, kind of internally, but, you know, it's important. It's not the worst thing in the world if a typo or double punctuation might slip through, uh, but it's a good solution for them. It hits their price point, so they're happy with that solution. Yeah, flexibility is key, obviously. Um, then we went on to do an episode, this was episode 16 on translating video content. And one of the things that I remember from that one, and let's see if you can expand on this is, um, you know, rework is not your friend. Um, really stemming from the fact that when you jump into a video project, if, if you are doing full voiceover, multiple languages, multiple voice actors, you know, let's say you have two female voices, a male voice, then you have the audio engineer, the studio. Uh, Then, of course, you have the translator and the project manager and the editor. And if you get into the studio, you record some stuff, and then you say, ah, boy, we'd really like to change that. You're almost starting from scratch again, so you have to expect kind of larger fees. So we were saying to work very deliberately, as I recall. Yeah, um, if if at all possible, and we understand sometimes it's not, it's it's the best case scenario if you can freeze that content when you send it for translation. Quoting is fine. If you're like, hey, this is a rough video. It's not done yet. How much is it going to cost? We can come up with your your rough price on that. But when you say go, we're, we're wheels on the ground. We're going. We're hitting the ground running. That's going to go very quickly. So like you said, kind of forcing a wedge of change in the middle of that is going to basically turn the project on its head. Yeah. And that includes client review, right? I mean, don't uh, if you're going to have someone weigh in, have them weigh in on the script mm-hmm. rather than have, have them weigh in on the final video where if they make changes, now you're essentially starting that process over. So, um, you know, make sure to share any of the wrinkles in your project with your project manager so mm-hmm. those can be avoided. Yeah. Another thing for videos before we move on to the next one, um, I think it's important to always consider timeline. Um, it is pretty variable depending on if you have a client review, if you're reviewing uh, the script, if you're reviewing the video, all those things kind of tack on to the timeline. And I say that because I'm working on a video project that's going uh, quite a bit over timeline right now, but there's a lot of those moving parts going on. So um, the client certainly understands that, but it just it's just going to take longer due to all the steps that are involved. Certainly. Um, thinking of episode 13 as well, uh, that was one we did with Kimberly uh, Miller, our, our production manager, and it was on Madcap Flare best practices. And 
There was a lot to cover in that <laughs> podcast, as I recall. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a million different things you can do in Flare. Um, and one of the things to take into account is that, you know, you don't really want to do any wordsmithing or kind of just massaging the English if you can avoid your source content, uh, because that's going to cause widespread changes. You know, if that's in a cross reference, if that's in a snippet that's using, that's being used in a lot of different places, that's going to drive your cost up with that one seemingly small change. Yeah, definitely. Um, something as simple as changing how you, um, you know, are you using the imperative uh, to give people a command? In other words, you know, uh, please print the reports. Or then if you decide, well, we're going to make it all printing the reports. You know, that's the the uh, example that I come with um, that I talk about in Madcap Flare projects. We had a customer who had a massive help system and decided to wordsmith. And the costs were, were crazy to do that update because, of course, changed the all of those segments that were already committed to translation memory were now nullified and the crazy thing is it didn't change the translation right the meaning could be exactly the same the example i always think of is you know if you see the an option for you know select this option and you change it to choose that's seeming it doesn't change the meaning at all but the um the english has changed so it's not going to come up as a hit in the translation memory yeah and any of those issues you have to basically multiply by the number of languages. So if you think you're making those changes in English and you're operating in a 10-language environment, you're now going to multiply those costs by 10. And um, I would definitely avoid that. The translation memory is your friend um, in all projects, but of course more so in these monster-sized help projects. You know, Really use that asset and make sure that you're not doing that wordsmithing that adds limited value. Mm -hmm. I think another important consideration, too, is to make sure the provider that you're working with knows how to operate in these tools. Um, they are very complex, but there are um, companies who are very, very good at them. They have very thorough knowledge. Uh, they have a very good relationship with the creators of those uh, programs, so they have good support systems in place. So really make sure they know how to use the tools and make sure when you do have a project that they are using those tools and they're not trying to just you know sneak into the back end of Flare drag out all the files and translate those because that's going to be a nightmare. We've seen tons of nightmares that way and have had to ha help clients fix projects where essentially the content was jail um, jailbreaked. And if you jailbreak content in a Flare project, you're going to, um, you're really going to get hurt because of course none of the functionality is going to happen. And in other words, when you, when you build this Flare project, certainly there's HTML and XML that comes out the other end. If you simply translate those files, you're going to lose the snippets, the ability to build the table of contents, uh, probably hyperlinking. There's all sorts of things that you're going to lose, and the project is now not easily updated next time around. Right, and that um, honestly has little to do with translation. It's just more project architecture of how how it's built within uh, Flare and the help system. So it's really, it could be outside the realm of what a translation company actually does because it's more kind of engineering and trying to figure out how to stuff that Flare project back together. Absolutely. Whereas if you use the tools, you avoid all those issues. Obviously, if you use Lingo to package the translations. Right. We've, we've mentioned parsing time and time again, and that's how we you know kind of strip away everything but the language. So we have the tools in place to strip away all of that um, that. Uh, architecture and flair that makes your project work and we just pull out the language so that's all that our translators will see and that's all that we're going to deal with so we're going to leave all those elements off to the side so we know that they still work when we go back into flair absolutely that maintains the integrity of the the project and 
uh, allows us to accrue really good translation memory. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, episode 10, I thought, was another really good one. So that was where we worked through best practices for an RFP. I think uh, if you are a buyer of translation services, that one would be a really good one to, to go back into the archive and listen to. Um, one of the things that I always think of is when people are asking about costs inside of an RFP, all too often we just see them focus on per word costs when really they should probably look at doing some baskets of projects uh, that have different scenarios that require functional review, that require desktop publishing, that require client review and managing that process. Um, maybe if, if software is part of the equation, doing a, a quote for a software project or a website. So you really get to flush out what those special charges are. Because all too often, Patrick, I think we've seen mm -hmm. quotes where things aren't itemized. There's mysterious fees that are added on. Um, and none of that will come forward if the only thing you're talking about in pricing on that RFP is what is the cost per word. Right. Um, I think it's important, like you said, to get sample quotes, send the same thing to different firms and say, send me a quote for this. I think that's the easiest way to get to the bottom of pricing. You'll see their quote. You'll see if they do itemize things, how they're broken out, um, what they do in terms of description and what you're actually getting back. I think that's going to be a critical step in RFPs. Definitely makes a lot of sense. And I think that it's uh, a tough process. And I would say you would also want to guard against inviting too many people. I mm -hmm. think we've seen that too many times where, oh, there's 15 companies in this RFP. I mean, what you might want to do instead, of course, is do an RFI, kind of gather high-level requirements and sort of eliminate people at the high level and then focus in on maybe three or four at the most. Yeah, to that end, too, um, I know we cautioned against going through multiple rounds of an RFP, um, going through a bunch of them ourselves. We kind of feel like two is the sweet spot, um, and it's kind of that process you mentioned there. It's the first round would be a kind of high-level uh, discussions, and then the second round with a couple, two, three, four, would be those really nitty-gritty discussions. Um, another big point on that one uh, that I wanted to bring up was it's always important to know who's requesting the RFP and if they will be the person or people who are going to be sending you projects. I feel like it's very difficult to get in touch with the people who are going to be the boots on the ground once the RFP is won. And I think it's super important for them to be involved because you know they're the ones who are going to have all the requirements, all the specific requests um, that we're going to need to adapt to. Definitely. Um... I think all too often those people are left outside of the loop during the RFP process. And I think personalities are super important in how you work with people. And I think having them involved is certainly helpful. And I also think that you have to look at some of the sort of extraneous bells and whistles. I know one of the things that people really get fixated on are customer portals. And we have a very different approach. Um, our idea with customer portals is that if it's too cookie cutter, really essentially you're doing is transferring the job of the project manager to the customer, and it's maybe less of an advantage but more of a disadvantage Where for, from the customer's viewpoint. Whereas if there's some customization of that portal, if you're able to limit the languages, limit the file types, include some custom fields, then that portal becomes an asset. Right. We do have a few portals out there. Um, like you said, kind of. Sometimes the best thing is to limit the customers because they might go a little bit crazy with kind of a cookie cutter approach. Um, but I mean, we have a portal for one of our customers that, I mean, throughout the year it, it takes over a thousand projects. So it and it it's 
it does give work back to the customer, but it does things where for the end of the project, they're set up in a position for success. Absolutely. And we accrue a ton of data that's really important to the end customer. Just, in fact, just built those reports yesterday, so uh, it's very fresh on the mind. But we're collecting really important data that they want to see quarterly and year-end um, to understand the types of work that are being done. So that's kind of their driver. And that was made specifically and on a custom basis for them rather than just chucking up a portal that comes free with right. a system. And it's important to note that those are customized and they're refined and they're geared towards the customer and how it's going to set them up for success. Absolutely. Well, with that, I think ends our recap. Um, I wanted to take a look forward. We're really excited about 2020, and uh, we already know we're going to feature um, we're going to feature some of the staff from the translation program at UW Milwaukee. We're looking to get some translators on board. Uh, we have a few commitments already. Um, an advertisement agency that's going to talk a little bit about the intersection between translation and marketing, and also an SEO and some marketing experts as well. Uh, Patrick, if you had to say who would be your number one, like who would you like to see on the pat podcast besides like your favorite football person? Or... Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> since I'm the evil uh, podcast person in the office, I want to get Mike on here, who's another one of our project managers. He's the only one who's avoided me so far. Uh, so we should be hearing from him early next year. Yeah, definitely. We'll try to make that our first show then. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, that wraps up another uh, episode of Translation Confidential. Thank you very much for a good year, and we look forward to uh, to being with you next year. Happy holidays to everyone. Happy holidays to everyone.